0: Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and from our blessed comforter, the Holy Spirit, on this Trinity Sunday. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters in Christ, before we begin this morning, as Pastor Knuckles indicated in the pre service announcements, please open your hymnals to page 319, the Athanasian Creed, and Mark it with your worship folder or bookmark so you'll be prepared when we come to that point. We will recite that together. As I grow older, I become more and more convinced that being a Christian is the most difficult religion in which to remain faithful. That's not to say that in certain other situations, adherents of other faith traditions and religions don't face difficulties. Many belief systems are persecuted in various countries or regions by those who disagree with them and by those who reject religion altogether. All things being equal though, it's tough being a Christian. Part of that is Part of that difficulty is due to characteristics that we share as Christians with several other faiths. For one thing, like many other faiths but unlike others, we do not have a visible God who is easily seen, identified, or experienced. We don't worship a tangible object like a tree or an idol, or a visible one like the sun or the moon. A God you could touch and you could see would seem to be more present and somehow more accessible to us. It's also tough having a faith in which there is nothing at all that we can actively do to achieve its ultimate objective. The removal of the guilt of our sins and the reconciliation with the divine that assures us of everlasting life. We cannot perform any way in earning our deity's favor through any actions we might do, even in part. We can only surrender. We can only acknowledge our inability to do anything worthy of God's blessings and accept those blessings in humility, not in pride at having done more than the next person toward our piety and toward our salvation. Christianity is also quite difficult, because we are the primary targets of all of Satan's efforts to destroy faith and to draw people away from the one true God. People of other religions and people of no religion at all certainly do face temptations to sin. Yet those temptations come from their own fallen nature and from the calls of the world around them, not from the devil himself. After all, why would Satan need to pull a Buddhist or a Muslim, or a Jew, or a Hindu away from a God or a faith that cannot save them from eternal damnation. When you think about all of the dangers and all of the difficulties in trying to live out a Christian life, what a blessing it is that our Lord has promised to us that not a single one of those whom He has chosen will be snatched out of His omnipotent hand. We have His assurance that we will be kept safe in the ark of his church, protected from all the threats that would turn us away. We can never comprehend, and we can never answer the question of why some fall away from faith and do not return, while he keeps us steadfast, even in our weakness. Now, some of the many tools that our loving God has provided to his church through his holy word are the creeds, Those formal statements of faith that describe God's being and elaborate upon God's work. We're most familiar, of course, with the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. We say them together quite regularly in the course of our weekly worship. But if you look carefully, the scriptures are chock full of creeds, are they not? There are dozens, if not perhaps hundreds, of locations where an individual within the Bible states his belief or her belief about Almighty God. Some of these creeds are quite simple. Others are more extensive and more elaborate. They may not be as comprehensive as the creeds we recite every week. They don't fully explain the faith in the same way, but they are certainly there. Look back to Israel's statement in the Old Testament. The Lord is one. To Job's confession, I know that my Redeemer lives. Look to David's many statements in the Psalms about the nature and about the action of God. And in our epistle lesson for today, today, does not Peter deliver a creed of sorts, a powerful statement of belief about who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done. Even in our gospel, does not Jesus himself give one of the most succinct and most powerful creeds about the nature and the work of God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Today is Trinity Sunday, a day that for some, unfortunately, creates a great deal of awkwardness and anxiety and even some resistance to confessing their Christian faith in a creed. Some resist the Athanasian creed because it's unfamiliar to them. Others don't care for it because it is somewhat longer than the other common creeds, and at times it seems to get a bit repetitive. Lord knows how inconvenient it would be for us to spend a couple of extra minutes confessing the only thing that stands between us and total permanent death, right? I'm sure that some don't like the Athanasian Creed because it confuses them with all of that talk about the complexities of the Holy Trinity, too. We like to understand things, and frankly, I'll be the first to admit that while this creed like the other two ecumenical creeds, certainly makes a valiant stab at it. The Holy Trinity remains an an incomprehensible mystery to all of us. And finally, there are those among us who blanch at using that word Catholic that appears so frequently in the Athanasian Creed. We're Lutheran Christians after all, and we darn tootin' like being Lutherans, not Catholics. Wasn't that what the Reformation was all about? After all, well, I hate to burst your bubble, but the Reformation was first and foremost intended to return the church, the Catholic with a small c-church established by Jesus himself to the truths which the Nicene and the Apostles and the Athanasian Creed teach us and which we confess. In fact, if you look to the book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, the very first documents incorporated there were these three ecumenical creeds. You know, if you have a hard time with the word Catholic, if it sticks in your craw as we read the creed together today, I want you to try real hard to say it anyway. But in your mind, you can go ahead and try and substitute the words one true each time we come to it. If your brain can make that connection and that leap, then maybe your heart can, too. Let's stand and give it a try, up through paragraph 18. Pastor Knuckles will read the odd verses, and we will be responding with the even ones.
1: Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith,
0: and and
1: And the Catholic faith is this. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father Father infinite, the Son infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet, there are not three eternals, but one eternal. In the same way, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, the Holy Spirit Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not ones, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord.
0: May be seated. Yes, that pattern does get a little bit repetitive, I'll admit. But it's that pattern that really drives the points home, too. That these things are crucially important for us to know and to believe about God. For as we confess at the very beginning of the Athanasian Creed, Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic that is the one true faith. That almost understates the matter, really. For it's not just above all that we must hold the faith, but to the exclusion of all beliefs which run contrary to it. And it's surprising how many nominal Christians don't seem to understand that. They think that it's perfectly okay to treat the faith and the truths about it which God's word reveals to us as some sort of a buffet line where you pick and choose. They find it perfectly acceptable to chisel off the sharp edges of the Ten Commandments and to dilute the strength of God's message until they can define a God that they are comfortable with. Their God isn't powerful enough to have created the world in six days. Their God wasn't angered enough by sin to have flooded the whole world and wiped out His creation, but for a faithful few. Their God didn't really open the sea so that His chosen people could pass through and be saved from their pursuing enemies. They must have just found a shallow spot or something. But when you find a little bit of wiggle room on that, it's easy to set aside other sorts of things too, like what God calls sin and what He does not. But you know the real danger and the real end result of creating your own sort of a God like that? It means it puts you have put yourself at odds with God and what He has revealed to us in His Word. And it separates you from that one true faith that 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 Word tells us. The one true faith that the church confesses in all of its creeds. It allows you to reduce God to less than what God says He is, and to remake God in your own image, an inversion of the rightful order of things. Is that really the sort of God you would want to create for yourself? Think about it for a moment. A God not conceived by the Holy Spirit and not born of the Virgin Mary would carry the same corrupt and sinful nature as you and I and would not have been a suitable and unblemished sacrifice. If He did not shed His blood for you on the cross, then your sins are not atoned for. If he did not die and take your sins with him to the grave, they still cling to you. And if he did not return to life as he had prophesied and promised, you would have no hope of victory either. But the one God, the God we worship in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, uncreated, infinite, eternal and almighty, has accomplished all of that for you. Christ has kept the Catholic faith whole and undefiled for you and he has applied his perfect obedience and his righteousness to you so that you will not perish eternally. We rise to continue, paragraphs 19 through 26.
1: Just as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so also are we prohibited by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father is not made nor created, God The Son is neither made nor created, but begotten of the Father alone. Oh. Thus, there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. But the whole three persons are co eternal with each other and co equal, so that in all things, as has been stated above, the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity is to be worshiped. Therefore, must make us
0: on Please be seated. All three of the Christian creeds speak clearly to the belief that our one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and has existed in three persons from all eternity. This puts us at odds, of course, with other major monotheistic faiths such as Judaism and Islam. There isn't room in those religions for such notions as the Trinity. To divide God into more than one person degrades his power and sovereignty, we're told. As for a human being to have a divine nature, Ridiculous, preposterous, blasphemous. But what really denies or degrades God's power and God's sovereignty, though? Telling God that he can't exist in the ways that he has revealed himself to be, or accepting it as beyond our comprehension and our limited ability to understand It seems to me that any human attempts to paint God into a corner or to shove Him into a box that He has not constructed for Himself are far more preposterous, far more blasphemous than simply bowing our heads and saying, As You say, Lord. We may not win over other people of the book like Jews and Muslims to Christianity because only the Spirit can do that working through the proclaimed Word of God. But we ought not and we must not shy away from the creeds simply because we're afraid that their clear witness to the Trinitarian nature of our God might offend others. In spite of all attempts to paint it as such, we do not worship the same God as those other religions. Yes, we do have some very strong common roots, and we do share portions of the Scriptures with them, even those portions that were copied over under supposed different human authorship. But there can be no avoiding the fact that, apart from the belief that the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, we cannot have the same God. Another difficult truth is that many other supposedly Christian denominations have abandoned the creeds of the church as well. Sometimes this came about because of an abandonment of liturgical worship for some sort of a free-form and spontaneous worship an attempt to supposedly return to the basics of the early church, historical evidence to the contrary notwithstanding. But the fact is, Christian worship has been liturgical from the very beginning, as was worship in the synagogue and before that in the temple and in the tabernacle. Creeds became a part of Christian worship because stating a common faith publicly is a witness to an individual's belonging to the church, and it demonstrates a unity within a Christian congregation under Christ. Another familiar cry among those who have abandoned the common public statements of faith for some sort of individualized and subjective testimony of experience is, deeds, not creeds. While we do acknowledge that from our Christian faith flow good works on behalf of our neighbor and to the glory of God, there's a huge problem with a statement such as, deeds not creeds. Deeds are what you do. Creeds are what you believe. Is there any clearer way of advocating to the world the false and dangerous teaching of works righteousness, or a more prideful way of undermining the absolute necessity of Christ's sacrificial death and the truth that faith in him alone saves, than to say deeds, not creeds. We speak the creeds because we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge that each of the three persons of the Holy Trinity are God and our Lord, and that the nature and the work of these three persons are essential to our faith. Desiring to be saved, we do and we must think thusly about the Trinity— and confess, both as individual Christians and as church, their truths. We continue now with our final recitation of the Athanasian Creed, beginning with paragraph 27.
1: But it is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully... Believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ
0: Christ,
1: He is God, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages, and he is man, born from the substance of his mother in this age. Perfect God. Equal to the Father with respect to his divinity, less than the Father with respect to his humanity. One, however, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. One For as the rational soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. Who suffered our salvation, descended into hell, rose again ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, from whence He will come to judge the living and the dead. And those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire.
0: This is the
1: matter of whoever is not and firmly be saved.
0: If you are paying attention, or if you are familiar with the Athanasian creed, you probably notice that the middle section describes the eternal natures and relationships of the three persons of the Trinity, while this latter section that we just read a moment ago goes into great detail about the person and the work of Christ. In fact, if you look closely, you can probably detect the echoes of portions of the Apostles and Nicene creeds within each of these two sections. In the second section, the begottenness of the Son and the proceeding of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. Now, as we look at the final section of this creed, we see, as we do in the other creeds, the centrality of Jesus Christ to our faith and to our salvation. Note, if you will, how this final section begins. It is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not that Jesus Christ was just a good and noble human being, chosen and blessed by God and somehow infused with the Holy Spirit. Not that Jesus was a spirit being or some sort of an angel that came to proclaim God's message and to do miracles. Not that Jesus was a manifestation of God as the Lord had previously appeared visibly to people in the Old Testament. Rather we confess the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the taking on of human flesh by its assumption into the wholeness of God, a complete unity of the human and the divine, as inseparable as it is incomprehensible, a God of such love that he chose to be united in body with humanity and united in life and in suffering and in death with humanity. In love, the only Son was given for you, that you might believe and might confess these truths about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has done the ultimate good, so that you need not worry that you have not done enough to enter into eternal salvation. As St. John recorded of Jesus' words to Nicodemus, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The good that Jesus has done is now yours, through faith in him. This is the one true Catholic faith. Believe it faithfully. Believe it fully. Confess it boldly and publicly and confidently, and you will be saved through him. In the name of the Holy Trinity,